Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. It will happen more and more. You only need to look at the elite European managers. So Jurgen Klopp has an analyst as his assistant manager. Pep Guardiola is the same. Um, Thomas Tuchel the same. Most elite level European managers coming over in the last five years have had an analyst attached very closely to them. I'm Simon Austin from Training Ground Guru and we've got a special episode of the podcast for you this month. It's live from the Huddle UK Football Conference at Loughborough University and is with Mark Leyland. I started off by introducing him to the audience. Mark is one of the foremost analysts in this country, but he's actually become a lot more than that. Uh, he started his career in the academy at Everton and has gone on to work for Burnley, Liverpool, Newcastle and now City Football Group. He's one of the rare backroom staff that is name-checked by managers. Uh, Eddie Howe described him as integral uh, and said we love him to bits. Jurgen Klopp said he'd played a big part in Liverpool's success. They embarrass you a bit here with this. <laughs> Mark was a post-match analyst at Liverpool, but evolved into a hybrid coach analyst at Newcastle and is now head of coaching methodology for City Football Group. So welcome, Mark. Thank you. Yeah. A lovely introduction. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. No, today. thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Yeah. Um, and I was going to spin right back to the start of your career. Uh, can you tell us how you first became involved in football? Uh, so I never played to a high level, really. Uh, I played Sunday leagues, Saturday leagues, locally. Um, I, I always kind of knew that I wanted to do something in football. I always thought I had an understanding of how the processes worked and how kind of analysis worked. Analysis, I use it in inverted commas because it was not really much of a, of a, a thing really. Uh, so I was lucky enough, my friend, my best friend in school played for Liverpool as a kid. Um, Dave Raven his name is and he used to get his games on VHS and we used to watch them back and analyse them together. So we used to talk about his performance and what he could do better. And I was about 15 or 16 at the time and it gave me the idea that there's a progression there for someone like me who hasn't played. Uh, so when I went to university at John Moores, I kind of uh, followed the path. I investigated the idea of going into clubs um, and it never really materialised until I went back to do my Masters. Um, so four years after I started my undergraduate degree, I started a Masters in Motor Skills and I got a placement at Everton, a part-time placement. It was unpaid, it was an unpaid internship and it really just exposed me to what life was really like in a football environment, which I'd never seen before at an elite or professional level. So that's really how I got involved. It was really academia and uh, a relationship with a friend from school that really got me thinking that there was a potential career in football for me. So was that a performance analyst role to start with? Was it in the academy as well? Yes, so I was, uh, I was responsible for basically coding uh, some game footage. Uh, the landscape of analysis has changed quite a lot in the 18 years since I've been doing it now, which sounds quite scary. So back then it was very much We'd use uh, sports code to really just cut video and would provide the coach with some material to present a post-match review or a training review. 
At the time at Everton, there was a team of six interns with one head of analysis from under 23s down to the under nines. And we kind of just covered everything and provided the coaches with as much information as we could without any really, uh, any real processes. It was never really a process driven approach, but it gave me a start point, um, something that I, I really appreciated and I really hopefully never look back on. And did you have to learn very quickly in the role as an intern and then a young analyst? And what, what were the key lessons that you learned? hundred percent. I think most analysts in the room will know that the first kind of uh, experience or exposure to coaches or players is quite a nerve-wracking one, particularly when you don't come from a professional football environment like I didn't. Um, so I, I presented at university, but sitting in front of a team of 20 players and, and, a, and an elite football coach is very different to doing that. Um, so you have to learn really quickly. You quickly learn that there, are, there isn't a lot of room for mistake. So it's the pressure you put on yourself to perform in those pressure situations that uh, really like, drives you forward as an analyst. And I think everyone who's kind of done that role in the background will, will understand. And um, I've had some terrible experiences with computer failures, websites popping up in the background of meetings with kids and you just things that you don't want to happen and you don't want to experience but the academy particularly the way it was then it's, it's changed a lot now but it was very novel it was very new so when things went wrong there was almost the room for negotiation it was like okay something's went wrong but look at this great resource we have Whereas like now I know that that's, that, that that's not allowed within football. There is no room for error as an analyst. Oh, right. So you do learn really quickly. You almost create a list of how-tos in your brain and, and what not to do within a meeting or within a, within a coding of a game or your match process. Uh, and that grows over time and it never really stops growing. It's all the, the what nots, what not to do's and how not to work. So that, really drive you forward. Did you have any particularly good mentors in those days who showed you the way and that you learned from? Yeah, definitely. So I think an outstanding like, part of my career progression is my relationships with people that I've worked with. Um, I'll talk about it as we go through my job roles. At Everton, I started, I got given an opportunity by James Bell Walker, who's now a UK scout at Chelsea. Um, sorry, a senior scout at Chelsea has changed roles. So he. Um, he gave me the opportunity as an intern, uh, great character, taught me how to use all the equipment that we had at the time, all the cameras, all uh, sports tech equipment at the time. And I had a coach, a head coach called Neil Jusnip, who was really experienced, uh, formerly from an education background. And it was really my relationship with them two that when James decided to move into a recruitment role from the analysis role, it gave me, they gave me the opportunity. They interviewed, they didn't really see anyone that they liked from the interview panel. So Neil Jusnip, the head coach said, I like Mark, give Mark a chance. And it was purely because I spent my time trying to learn from him. I knew that he had 20 years experience that I didn't and that I wanted. So I spent every minute of every day that I could. Like I say, it was an unpaid internship, but I was there seven days a week. I was, I was 20, 21 years old. So I spent all my time learning from them. I listened to everything, I wrote everything down and I just, built up a kind of a library of Neil's knowledge, of Kev Sheedy's knowledge, who was an Everton player at the time. It went on through different people like Alan Stubbs, Andy Holden, Duncan Ferguson, all the coaches that worked there. I just learned everything I could from them all. But by doing that, Neil had seen something in me that maybe he hadn't seen in other people. Mm. And that gave me my first full-time role. It was six months after I started my internship. 
So it was quite quick. And what were the players like with analysis at that time? Were they on board with it? Yeah, so I say it was quite new, but because they were all of a similar generation to me, I was, say I was 21, the, the, the people I was working with were around 15, 16, 17 mostly. So they were all exposed to computers at that time. They were all exposed to phones. So they were all understanding of it. The thing, the battle that we had originally, uh, and there's still a battle in the game at times, was moving away from the difficult process of having negative conversations. So at the time, whenever there was a negative conversation, it felt as though we were hammering someone, it was a battering. We had to try and educate people that that wasn't, it was a development environment. So a lot of the terminology we used, there was no negative uh, aspects of play, it was all areas to improve, development areas, um, IDPs. Or, we used lots of terminology to say that this wasn't a tool to beat them with. Mm. It was a carrot, it was a carrot, this is what we can do better and this is how you can become a better footballer or a better team. Yeah. Um, so there were challenges, but they were all open to it, they were all brilliant. Um, I think, as most people in this room know, if you're working with elite athletes, they just want to get better. So anything that you can do to help them get better, they will use and they'll absorb. Um, and as I've kind of progressed through my career, I think that's only got more intense. So players at the elite level now, players that play in the Premier League, they absorb more and more and more, whether it's video or data or whatever it might be, analytics, in-depth analytics. They just want to absorb more. So everyone knew that it was there to help them. Is that a key thing even now then, if couching what might look by, like criticism in a positive way, that we're going to make you improve, we're going to make you better? Is that something that you always think about? Yeah, I try to. There's, there's moments where a conversation has to has to have a negative element so sometimes the the area that you want to work on is something that there's not really any positive signs on or it's a new it's a new area um, we always try and lean a positive direction i think your relationship with players and your conversations with people are are really important and the way you communicate particularly with young players um, in a senior environment the way you communicate with them is really important so it's important for them to know that you're on the journey with them. You're, it's a process that you're trying to develop with alongside them as a coach and as a player. Um, so yeah, I think so. And we were having a chat outside about one-on-one -on -one work that you've done with some quite big name players, which we'll come on to. Um, but it sounded like they were very self-critical anyway, and they really wanted to improve and see areas where they'd been weak and could get better. So Definitely. you arguably wouldn't need to do that. Definitely. So. If a player's playing in the first team and they know there's something they can do better to help their team win, they will try. If a player's not playing in the first team and trying to get into the first team, then they want to know why they're not in the first team and what they can do to improve. It's a very simple, it's very logical. Um, it's about getting from point A to point B and at some point there's, there's bumps in the road. So acknowledging those bumps is something that most footballers are accustomed to from a young age now. Yeah. They, they, they see all the, the software and the technology from a young age and, I spoke with you outside and there's players that I've worked with now who have their own Scout accounts or um, have their own analysts working alongside them and they get sent to organise a project through onto their Mac and they, and they work through sports code on their own now. Mm. Um, so the game is definitely changing and the environment is definitely a learning environment, even at the most elite level in my opinion. I was surprised actually when you told me that, that there are players who actually have their own sports code analysts who will yeah. cut the clips and make the libraries and things. It's an interesting role. Um, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a debate within football whether it's a positive or a negative sometimes because uh, what their analyst is 
trying to educate them on and what the coaching staff are trying to educate them on might, be, might look slightly different. But there's lots of players who have their own therapist now, own physio, um, own mindset coach. So it is a multidisciplinary approach mm-hmm. to the, the bigger picture of football now. So um, it's silly for a club or an analyst or a coach to try and fight it. It's better to bring it in and try and embrace it and try and enhance it from yeah. within. So yeah, there's more and more players doing it. Yeah. Would they ever come into the club with their own clips and their own analysis and challenge the manager or challenge the coach or challenge you? Uh, from my experience, it's not, it hasn't been a challenge. The, there's been times where someone has brought a few clips, a, t- a few timestamps even, or, or an organiser project, like I say, they're, they're very handy at using their own software now, um, and asked for opinion. But it's very much a conversation rather than an argument. Um, it's a discussion rather than a heated debate. Yeah. Like I say, everyone wants to get better. So yeah. if the player thinks that this may make them better, the coach may be able to explain, yes, it can or no, it can't. So at Everton, you made the move from the academy to the first team, did you, in your uh, career? No, I actually moved from Everton's academy directly to work for Burnley's okay. first team. Okay. So leading back on to my relationship point from earlier, I met a guy called Harrison Kingston, who now works as the director of um, analysis for the Moroccan Football Association. He was working at Tottenham's academy, and I just, whenever I went on any away trip, I would spend every minute just pestering people and just asking questions. So I met Harrison, and Harrison doesn't say a word to anyone. He's, he was really quiet at the time. Um, top guy. And I just asked him questions. What do you use? Uh, how do you feedback? Uh, how's your relationship with the coaches? What do you do with individual players? And we just struck up a, we just struck up a friendship, uh, a, a work friendship. He went to work for Burnley. He left Burnley to go for Liverpool. And he phoned me and said, would you like to come and talk to Eddie Howe about the possibility of working alongside him? Mm. That was something that I jumped at. Like the, first, the first team progression was always on my mind for the four or five years I was at Everton's Academy. So I really wanted to test myself in the waters of the first team. Yeah. And something we spoke about earlier, I think from an early point in my career, because of having no football background, football background, I played football every day in my life since I was about six but I never had a professional football background. I had a bit of an imposter, imposter syndrome. So I always wanted to prove myself. Okay, I'll prove myself I can work in an elite club, in an academy. Now I want to prove myself that I can work for a first team with an, a young elite coach who's really going to push me and test me. So I went to work for Burnley's first team with Eddie Howe. And he did really push you when you got there. Yeah, he's, um, he's obsessed with football. It's his whole life. I know there's people in this room who've worked with him as, as I have. He's. Um, an incredible human being, an unbelievable football coach, and an incredible thinker on the game. And he, um, almost immediately, it, it put me out of my depth. It put me in a really uncomfortable zone because he had a, an idea of how elite looked like. And I thought I did from Everton's academy, but realistically, I was miles off. So um, working alongside Ed, even though it was only for three or four months at the time, and Jason Tindall and Simon Weatherston and his coaching staff there at the time, it was a huge, huge progression in my career, a huge shock moment at first, mm. and it was sink or swim quickly. Um, thankfully, I just kept my head above the water, I think, um, for three or four months, and then, unfortunately, Eddie left and went back to, back, to his, back to his hometown in Bournemouth, and Sean Dyche came in, and again, progressed me again. Whole new skill set, whole new style of football, whole new identity but a, a real process-driven approach to analysis and 
the other disciplines within the game. So again, I, I, I just had the, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity in a nine-month period at Burnley to work with two real elite coaches. And I know we talked outside again about Harrison and how he helped you, and that was quite interesting, wasn't it? That he was willing to share so much and help so much, because maybe not everyone would be like that. Yeah, and I think that progressed further. So Harrison left Burnley to work for Liverpool. Nine months later, he offered me a job to go and work alongside him um, at Liverpool. And it was in that time that Harrison really opened up. It could have very much been a senior-junior relationship for Harrison and I in, in, in a work sense. But Harrison opened up and said, no, this is a department. I want you to work as closely alongside me as, as you can because sharing the workload is the only way that we can be successful within a club the size of Liverpool. Mm. Um, so he opened up all his processes. It was never I speak to him, he speaks to the coaches. It was uh, an open environment. And mm. I say I, I was kind of eternally grateful to him for that. Mm. And it's something that I like to think I've also attributed to uh, as I've progressed into different roles as well. Was that quite a traditional sort of post-match analyst role at that time, would you say? It you was, it was. So we used a variety of different uh, software at the time. Uh, the hardware we used wasn't great in terms of training ground solutions and things. So um, it very much was get the game footage back. We travelled to all the games as well, so we did live, me and Harrison did live analysis and the post-match analysis uh, for a post-match review meeting. There was no real longitudinal projects or databasing of information. We'd started to work on it, but the, the processes didn't really work because organiser projects didn't exist at the time. It was a more basic version of post-match analysis as it is now, but it was very much just a post-match uh, uh, job role and then that developed over time really. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like it did really evolve as you say, so, and you became more involved with one-on-one -on -one work with individual players. Yes, so as the, as kind of the analysis the world grew, and I'm saying this like I was one of the founding, analysis was there before me and I'll obviously be here after me, but it, like in my world it grew bigger and bigger and the multidisciplinary approach grew, grew bigger and bigger within the club, led by the sporting directorship at Liverpool. So we had a group of players called the Elite Development Players, and they were players who were coming from the academy to the first team, who were on the fringes, on the periphery of really impacting the first team, but also some players who, who were in and out of the team at that time, so more senior players. Um, so we work really closely with them, just trying to help them improve. Uh, like I say, if you're not in a team, you want to know why you're not. So we were trying to give them the information led by the coaching staff that may be able to help them improve enough to get into that first 11 which is the holy grail obviously for every player and also for the young players who clubs now spend an awful lot of money bringing in a 16 17 year old to educate them and to uh, enhance their skills and to a point where they're ready to play in the premier league is sometimes a process that that is a little bit more long term so i became involved in those processes uh, very much led by the coaching staff and the manager and the sporting directorship um, and that really brought me closer to the coaching group for definite that has been quite an, an evolution in the game in general, hasn't it? That focus on individual development and analysis being a key part of that. 100%. It's something that, in my current role, it's huge. Um, it's something that I've just scratched the surface on in the few months that I've been at, at City Group. But with the amount of players they have across, across the world under the age of 23 and in that bracket of elite development players, the individual development process is huge. Um, there's clubs who have specific coaches for that. There's some clubs use their assistant managers or their managers to really do that work and it's a bit more of a collaborative process. 
but it's, it's grown exponentially and I think it will continue to do so. We really scratched the surface of it in my time at Liverpool. I know they've developed it since, but we just started the process really when I, when I left. I say we just started it, we just, we've been in it for about a year and probably just scratched the surface of it. And we brought in our elite development coach, we brought in our head of sports science, our head of nutrition, our head of academy, uh, our, our player liaison officers. And they, we really came together and said, right, how do we get this player from where he is now to a better place? Whether it's moving forward or whether it's getting a professional career or whatever it might look like, how do we improve them as a player and a person? Yeah. And you were picking out Dave Okarigi, weren't you, as someone who really embraced analysis and took it on board? So, yeah, uh, very rarely talk about individuals, but Divock was someone who was really intelligent, incredible, incredibly intelligent young man, spoke four or five different languages um, fluently, and he had his own, uh, his Wisecout account, and he had his own access to an, an analyst and a, a therapist. Um, he was very much on the forefront of what an elite athlete should look like, despite being a young man. Um, so yeah, he, he was someone who I worked quite closely with. I uh, really enjoyed my time working with him and he's obviously still doing pretty well for himself at the moment. And hopefully he continues to do so. But there was a number of players ranging from young ages at 15, 16 to more senior pros in, in their early 30s who also embraced the process. Mm. Um, it was quite, quite all-consuming really. It was a big project that we undertook and mm. I think now the need for a group of staff managing that is a little bit more relevant, a little bit more um, at the forefront of team's mind or sporting director's mind. And a lot of people highlight Liverpool, certainly in the past, has been the pioneers in terms of data science, the leaders. Um, and I was interested, I read an interview with Ian Graham, who was the head of the research department, and he was saying he actually wouldn't have direct contact with Jurgen Klopp a lot of the time, and the uh, coaches, that would go through you. So how, how did that work? Yes, so I think it looks similar in a lot of clubs, particularly with the head coach, so um, Jürgen Klopp's role at Liverpool is, I've used the words all-consuming again, he, he, from the moment he gets into the building to the moment he leaves the building and their long days, he's, he has his hands on things, whether it's media, whether it's player conversations, whether it's his sports science debrief or his medical meetings. He very rarely has time to sit down and process. Um, he processes all his coaching sessions, obviously, but some of the things that we can help him with uh, was the data input side. So a lot of the times, Jürgen was quite visual and so were his support staff. So Pete Kravietz, who's his, his assistant manager and his analyst, and Pep Linders, they were, they were quite visual people. So rather than take them a plethora of data, we tried to understand what Ian and his team wanted us, to, the message he wanted us to get across. And we try and pair it up with some video or some visual cues to try and help that process. Um, one thing I would say is they were incredibly open to it, given the fact that they had not seen the data at the level that Ian Graham was working. Incredibly open to it, uh, incredibly mindful of the fact that it was part of the process, and it really helped drive some of their processes, particularly with Pep Linders, uh, who I know you obviously know well, who's um, continuously trying to get better in his, in his role and trying to enhance his knowledge of football, and data was part of that process as well. Yeah. Our podcast sponsor, Huddle, can help change the way you see the game. More than 35,000 football teams across the world use their pro suite tools to combine video and data into powerful insights and winning strategies via one connected platform. Huddle also offers consultancy services for high performance sport with world-class experience and expertise in data management, 
player recruitment and head coach search. For more information, go to huddle.com forward slash TGG podcast. We had Sarah Rudd on the last episode of the uh, pod, who was the head of data at Arsenal, and she was talking about getting the right dosages for managers and coaches, which was it. And also saying you always have to pair data with videos. Yeah, I think, I think that landscape is shifting slightly. I'm not sure if people in the room would agree, but the coaches that I've worked with are now more likely to understand just having a data source than they've ever been in the past. So they see Sky Sports, they see uh, young players, see like Chat Manager and things like that in the past. And like I say, they're all familiar with the software. They all use it on a daily basis within the training ground. So if I was to present a piece of data to a player now or a manager, I would expect them to absorb it pretty quickly. In the past, I always try to pair it with video because I think that was the most effective way of, of helping football people, like generic football people. Now I think, and it's long been the case, but the coaches, head coaches aren't just football people. They are sports scientists. They have leadership degrees. They have all different qualifications and they understand all this different information sets. So the, their ability to absorb different things is the variety of information they can take in is obviously a lot bigger than it was previously. Yeah. yeah. And did it evolve so that you were spending more and more time on the training pitch then as time went on? And I know you had a very good relationship with Pep Linders, as you it, say. Yeah, so that kind of came hand in hand. So it wasn't something that materialised really by design. Uh, I sat in a lot of meetings with Pep Linders and his, his, and his um, the elite development coach, Vitor Matos, at Liverpool. And we came up with a lot of work around our, in, our own game plan and we paired it up with the opposition game plan we'd sit down and talk about our tactical plan for the upcoming games so it just made sense really for me to be on the training pitch or Harrison at the time for tactical for all tactical sessions whether you're doing 11 v 11 or pressing game plan type of sessions because we had live access to the video feed as well so like a huddle replay on the side of the pitch so we'd have immediate access so Pep may be focusing on the high pressing element of our of our, um, our pressing game plan whereas I could maybe sometimes see something behind the ball that him and Vito may have thought oh that wasn't that that relevant and I could take it to him at any point or I could talk to any individual player on the pitch at any point they were the coaching staff were really open for us to do it and that all comes around trust right that all comes around the relationship of working together for six or seven years we all knew the way each other were thinking and more importantly I knew the way the coaching staff were thinking and that only come with time so I was able to talk to players uh, just step in and have a, a little chat with someone if something was obvious it was out, mm. was out of line so yeah all tactical sessions we then became a part of the coaching process and I think that's something that's quite relevant within the analysis world now the the, the link and the bond between analysts and coaches is becoming the lines becoming a little bit more blurred um, which is leading to a lot of people kind of crossing paths, uh, mostly from analysis to coaching. Um, it's a process that I think will continue to grow as well as the skill sets are, are very similar. Yeah, and I guess that comes down to relationships again with the players that they'll listen to you and you're not just the bloke with the iPad on the side and knowing when to intervene as well and when to talk to the coaches. I think that's a, that's a player education thing from my, from my experience. So when I first started and there was young players, they very much saw you as the computer guy, which is still a case. There's still analysts who are computer people who are technology driven, which is, which is okay. Um, 
I very much wanted to be able to have football conversations with football players and coaches. But the education of the players now, they know that the analysis process drives a lot of coaching practice as well. So the coaches have their methodology, but it's, a lot of it's driven by video and data that's coming from the analysis team. So the players understand that, they're, they're not naive to it. So they know that if I am confident enough to tell a player a message, that that message is something that the coach would want them to know. I'm not going to step in and tell a, a player an alien message that is counterintuitive to the, to the bigger picture. Yeah. So they're aware that I would only tell them the message if it was something relevant and important. And it's interesting the level of detail you're going into. So I think back to that goal um, against Barcelona, the winner, the fourth goal in the Champions League semi. Yeah. And that was to do, and you identified how quickly or slowly the ball boys were returning the ball. That's right. So it was at Anfield and it was actually Harrison Kingston who was the brain yeah. behind it again. Um, I'm giving him a lot of good publicity here, aren't I? Yeah. He identified that the ball boys weren't getting the ball back in quick enough when we weren't winning. And we're, we were an intense team, we wanted things to be quick. So we, he produced a video and we did it with the ball boys. Um, we showed them the day before the game, every game. And it was one of the first times we did it actually, Barcelona game, because we knew we needed goals quickly. So we got, we'd got to three nil up and yeah, it was one of those moments where you almost can't write it. It was almost too good. The ball boy just dropped the ball down. And he's now, um, the ball boy who did it is actually playing in Liverpool's uh, under 21s, I believe, oh, or under 23. Right? Okay. So he's, oh, he's progressed through the system himself. <laughs> who is that, who would say? Uh, no, I'll leave it. <laughs> no, okay, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. So, so you actually got the ball boys into the training ground, did you, in the analysis room? They, they the held video. a meeting before, before with all the ball boys. I think it was given to them, it was sent to them, and it was also showed to them at the stadium before the game. So it's, just re it's the same as coaching process, right? You're just reinforcing key principles. This is our framework of how we work. That involves intensity, match tempo. These are the ways that you can help our match tempo. And that was by getting the ball back on the pitch as quickly as possible, whether it was a throw or a corner. Um, yeah, it just so happened it worked. Yeah, Particularly well yeah. in that moment. <laughs> and you talked about how you became increasingly involved on the training ground and with the coaching. So when you went to Newcastle, you actually had the title coach analyst this time. That's how, right. how did that come about? Uh, it was something that I drove myself, really. And it, probably going back to the whole imposter syndrome theory that I've labelled myself. Uh, I wanted to prove to myself that I could be uh, accepted within a coaching group. So I'd been accepted within professional football as an analyst. Could I then transfer that to being accepted within a Premier League environment as a as a coach. Um, so it was important for me to progress from Liverpool being my hometown club as well and where all my family are, are based. If I was going to make a move, it had to be a, a big move for my career. As, and the opportunity came to go and work with Eddie Howe again and it was part of the process. I asked him whether he would uh, allow me to be part of his coaching staff, whether, whether it would look like I'd be a, a coach and I'd be on the pitch. And he was, he was more than embracing of it. He accepted the job title and he brought me in and although the majority of my work still hands-on was analysis-based work, uh, being able to have the conversations with him in his office um, and being the link between um, kind of the analysis processes and, and his processes a lot of the time just by being there for him to sound off on me, um, I think benefited the group in general. But yeah, it was something that I drove really, it was something that I felt important for myself if I wanted to, to diversify my skill set that I needed to be seen in a different light by people within Newcastle, 
within our own coaching staff and the players and also in the bigger picture of football as well. I think it, there's not a negative aspect of an analyst becoming a coach in the Premier League. It's going to reflect really well on other analysts as well. Is it something we're going to see more and more, do you think? Because I can think of a few examples like there's Adam Sadler, I think, at Leicester, Zhao, Sacramento, right. the, you know, there's a few others. Yeah, Chris Davis, who I've worked with, who went to Leicester as assistant manager, Celtic and Leicester as assistant manager, now Tottenham's assistant coach. It will happen more and more. You only need to look at the elite European managers. So Jurgen Klopp has an analyst as his assistant manager. Pep Guardiola is the same. Um, Thomas Tuchel the same. Most elite level European managers coming over in the last five years have had an analyst attached very closely to them. And you see it now with all English coaches, well, say all English coaches, a lot of English coaches now come into a, an environment with an assistant manager, a sports scientist and an analyst of some variety because they know how they work and the importance of hitting the ground running, particularly at the elite level of League One Championship. It's the same everywhere, I understand, but where the pressure is three or four games and you're out of a job, the understanding that you've got the three or four people around you who really understand what you want, the message you want to deliver to your players, I think is key. Mm -hmm. And the assistant coaches and the analysts know that more than, than anyone, really. So I think it will happen more and more. It already happens pretty much everywhere, although some of them aren't publicised a lot. And you had the title at Newcastle. Had the job actually evolved as well from what you were doing at Liverpool, would you say? Yes, so I say I, I was very much part of the coaching process at Newcastle. The way the manager works, and I know there's people here who've worked with him, um, he has a, a core group of staff around him, and those staff work 12, 13, 14 hour days in his office. So. We'll get there at 6, 6.30 in the morning and we'll work all the way through planning training, delivering training, um, assessing training, seeing how the training session fits in the bigger picture and bigger landscape of his global idea, his, his football game model. Um, so it did, it, it really, I became part of the coaching staff. I was having conversations with the manager more than I've ever had before. Um, I was having conversations with the assistant manager and the players more than I've ever had before. I was building my skill set and I was diversifying what I actually did on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. And I think my time, even though it was only 18 months at Newcastle, it 100% made me a better practitioner just by changing the environment, changing the feel and changing the people that I was working with. Mm. And having been on the inside, is it very impressive what they're building there behind the scenes? Unbelievably. Un unbelievably. The, the job that they've done, as you can see, it's just mind-blowing, right? They were on, they were, they, no team has ever come back from the relegation zone like Newcastle were in. Um, they were in a real difficult position. Uh, and to, to, to finish where they were after only 18 months of finishing in the top four in the Premier League, is, I don't think something like that, I say something like that will never happen again, Leicester won the league and things, I, I pair those moments of kind of, they're just unbelievable. They, you, they're almost Hollywood's like storybook moments. The way the manager works there at Newcastle and his coaching staff, they are incredible. They are so elite. Their processes, the, their delivery of training sessions, their review of matches and the, the detail they go into and the processes of, of analysing the performance of themselves and the players is, yeah, mind-blowing. Incredi they're, yeah. they're an incredible bunch of staff. Yeah. I know they put in building blocks in place as well with the different departments and sciences and so on. Definitely. Newcastle obviously was always already a huge club and already had great people working there. 
it was more it was more about aligning them to Ed's vision or the manager's vision at that time. So th there was no real need to there was no big changes of right that department needs rebuilding or that department needs rebuilding. it was more a case of right if we want to get to where we want to get to what are we going to have to do and that involved bringing in more staff because they're, they're very demanding particularly of the analysis group as people in this room like Billy who now is one of the huddle staff he was part of the process with us and the first two or three months was was really difficult for us because we needed more manpower we needed more resource and we didn't really have it so we were just trying to keep up with the game schedule whilst trying to improve our processes in the background. That was really difficult. The only way we did it was by bringing in more people to support us. Um, so it wasn't really a case of upscaling people. It was more a case of just expanding and making sure everyone was aligned in their processes. Uh, and that's something that, that happened really, really quickly. Um, and there's a little bit of luck along the way, obviously, with a couple of results in the first season we were there that went our way but you create your own look in those moments, right? And that was all process driven by the manager and his, and his coaching staff. I said I was actually quite surprised that you left because you were getting a lot of praise from Eddie in the press. You seemed very influential, you know, you're involved day to day and in the matches. So how did that move to City Football Group come about? Um, carrying on a, a similar theme, a, a former physio that I worked with at Liverpool, who I'd remained really close with, uh, Lee Nobes, he, put me in contact with uh, Brian Marwood, who's the managing director of City Football Group. And um, I just had a chat, we just had a chat, and it transpired that there was a role within his kind of, within his team that was quite suited to my skill set. Leaving Newcastle, it sounds really ridiculous, leaving Newcastle was probably more difficult than leaving Liverpool, because I felt we'd just started the process. We were just getting started. My relationship with the coaching staff was improving daily. I, I was understanding more and more what the manager wanted from me. So I was, I was getting to a process where I think we were starting to work more efficiently and more effectively. We were still okay in the, in the time, but it was improving. It was a really difficult one. My family, I've got th three young children. Now I had two, two young children at the time. I decided to leave because it was a strain. The, the job was all consuming. It was seven days a week. Despite being at home some days, the workload was still 10, 12 hours a day. And I know most analysts in this room and most people who are recruitment in this room will understand that that is the case. It was probably more challenging than I imagined it to be uh, as someone who's been local in the Northwest for my whole, my whole life. Um, New, the, Newcastle was an unbelievable city, but it was just something that I found incredibly difficult and it, it probably affected my ability to perform my job to the level I would have liked it to. So I felt as though the opportunity to come to Citigroup with the job role that I accept that, that I, I was given was something that I'd have been silly to have turned down. It's a football decision and a family decision. And if you pair them both together, you've got a life decision there that you have to make. Yeah, that, it's a tricky one, isn't it? That probably a lot of people can empathize with really, but the impact that it has on family life to be involved, you know, with the first team. It, it is, and I, I was living at home for the three seasons that Liverpool were in the Champions League when I was there. And I think I saw my wife once a month. I was never home. We had no days off. There was no space within the, the calendar. And I had two daughters that were under the age of three at the time. And, and I think that that's okay. I think that was okay at the time. I, and then I look back at them now as a six and a four year old and I think that's not fair on them. It consumes, your football consumes you. If you want to achieve or you want to be successful at the elite level of football, I think it consumes every part of your life.
Um, you never switch off. You can never switch off. So it was, it was very difficult. It was very difficult for them more than it was for me because I was in a process where I was trying to achieve something. And luckily for me, I was in a, I was in a place where we did achieve. I know there's, there's hundreds of staff who are putting in equally as much work or even more work and, and, and not seeing the success. So I knew that I was lucky, but I was also mindful that the effect it was having on my wife and my, my children was something that I wasn't comfortable with. Yeah. And that's global in football. There's people all over the world who are struggling with that every single day, and yeah. it's not a process that's easy to solve. No. I, w I wonder if it's one football is going to crack, really. Because I was saying Russell Martin had said about Sundays are off limits for football, and that's his family day, puts the phone in the drawer. Yeah. But whether he'll be able to keep that up or not, I, I don't know. I've been really lucky. So Peter Kravietz, who was like kind of the coach analyst at Liverpool, he very rarely on the down days, because he was all consumed as well with the European travel and everything, he would very rarely contact me on those days. If he needed anything, it would be the morning of the next day we were back in, which always gave us enough time to prepare it. And that is something that the coaches are mindful of. They're all very aware that, you know, like I say, they're not just football coaches anymore. They are leaders and they are um, applied psych psychologists as well, and they understand the processes. So. I think managers understand sometimes you need a bit of time, but the amount of work that you need to get through to be successful at that level is, is more than a, an individual can. And, and because teams are so tight, because managers are so, um, because it's essential to know exactly what they're thinking at all times, they keep their groups quite small. Mm. And when you do that, you can't spread yourself into two or three people. You have to do the work yourself because you know exactly what he's picturing and exactly what he's demanding from you. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult, but they are, they are aware of it and they are very open to, I know for a fact if I said to the manager at Newcastle, I need a day, he would have been more than willing to do it. But you almost feel like you, you can't, you, you, you're so driven, you're so focused on your process that you can't do that. And it's an unusual title, uh, Head of Coaching Methodology. I don't, I don't know if I've seen that one before. What exactly does it involve? So we have 13 teams um, in the City Football Group, it's grown pretty rapidly over the last few years, uh, starting with Manchester obviously as the, as the first and flagship team. The ownership group have expanded across the globe and as a, as, a, as a group, as City Football Services, we want our teams to play with a collective identity or a collective ideology and to do that there needs to be a methodology, it needs to be found on objective data um, and, and based on fact. So my role is to, to try and align that across the group, across the 13 teams within the group. As I say, I'm quite new to it. I'm only two or three months into it. The variety of people within the group and the variety of cultures and languages and identities is, is so far reaching that it's something that I'm going into every day and kind of learning something new. It's a huge shock to your system when you realize that football isn't just a one club environment. Mm which is what most of us are exposed to. Uh, so that's the, the bulk of it, is trying to align the methodology across the group and, and trying to work with the coaches and the sporting directors within the, within the individual clubs to help them understand the way we want to kind of approach football with our game model and our training periodization. Yeah. Who are the people who feed into that, who decide what it's going to be? So all, everyone involved, really. So the, the ownership have... Obviously, we have Manchester, who are possibly one of the most attractive football teams that, that we've ever seen. So they're, they're lucky enough to have that as part of the group. 
I say lucky, it's not, it's not luck, obviously, it's a process that's got to that point. It's a long, hard process that's got to that point. Um, but the stakeholders from everywhere, so the managers who, who are in our group want to align to the group. The sporting directors within our group want to play with a, a coaching methodology that's similar to uh, something that looks like beautiful football or the city way. So there's multiple stakeholders. That comes from the ownership, from the managing director, Brian, from um, sporting directors, from head coaches, from players within the group that we recruit. They're all aligned to the same vision. Um, so like I say, it's a huge kind of funneling of information into a, into a final point of having 13 teams with, with staff and players who are all aligned. And just a final one, what are your own ambitions going forward? Have you, have you got it mapped out? Definitely not. Yeah. I don't like, I think I mentioned to you before, I don't like the idea of being pigeonholed. And that's not easy within football because you have a skill set. So my primary skill set is being an analyst. I've been an analyst for the longest time of my career. The idea of using my skills, whether it's my actual applied skills of using software like Huddle or whether it's um, my people skills or my ability to build relationships and communicate with people. I think that is transferable. So what I would like to do is I'd like to transfer it into different areas, which I think I have so far. Analysis, the coaching sphere, more of a um, longitudinal project type of environment. I just want to keep diversifying. I want to keep kind of opening up different pathways and understanding that Right, there's a number of jobs within football. Let's try a few of them. Let's see what, let's see how far it can reach. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Mark. Oh, thank you. I appreciate That's it. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter, at ground underscore guru.